Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the Rocking Horse Winner by D. H. Lawrence. This is first published in Harper's Bazaar, July 1926. Um, I was always a bit confused as to how many Harper's magazines there was. There's a Harper's Monthly and a Harper's Weekly and Harper's Bazaar, which is still going, even though it's not owned by Harper's anymore. Um, and it's, it's a worldwide magazine with editions all over the world. Um, but right from the beginning, it was uh, a woman's magazine, more importantly, a fashion magazine. And I think that's kind of important <laughs> for this, like, this story is, might be a critique of the audience it's being received for or sent to. I don't know. I just, I, th- I think about this story a lot as a sort of a borderline between mainstream science fiction fantasy and just regular mainstream stuff because it's a fantasy story in a certain sense but it's not the kind that I normally like love we did a story recently called um, Ode to Pegasus by Maria Morosky and even though that has some sort of more obvious connections to our regular world than most fantasy stories that I normally go for. Uh, I find it to be much more of the kind I like than this, which is very similar in many ways, I think, to uh, Ode to Pegasus. So I, I've read th- I, I read this story years and years ago, and it's always stuck with me, but it stuck with me sort of like it's stuck in my craw as well. <laughs> oh. Yeah, uh, because it it feels like it feels like, oh, we mainstream writers can do fantasy too, <laughs> or something like that. But it has seemed to, there's a message going on in it, and I get it, but I also don't get it, which I which I I'd never have that feeling. Well, I don't think I ever have that feeling when I'm reading fantasy as fantasy, if you know what I mean. I'm not sure that I do, Jesse. Mm. I I have some thoughts about that, but I. I I hesitate to offer them. Let me say this. Um, The Ode to Pegasus is a story. Before we get into that, Mm -hmm. I just want to add this Harper's Bazaar. This goes along with your idea of it being the story perhaps uh, functioning as a critique of the readership. Uh, Harper's Bazaar began as a fashion magazine. Mm -hmm. Particular version of it that you've put online for us to read spells bizarre b-a-z-a-r mm-hmm. which is the french spelling whereas in america now it's spelled with it's b-a-z-a-a-r mm-hmm. which is the english spelling of bizarre there is a sort of francophone um nodding here toward Absolutely. the fashion um it says uh, instead it gives us the the number and the year of the uh, but we're told it's the midsummer fashions number so already clearly the magazine is moving away from just being purely fashion yet it says that it's number 2565 
in the 59th year. Mm-hmm. And for it to actually have gotten to that number, presuming they're numbered consecutively, mm-hmm. Harper's Bazaar would have had to be a weekly. Um, you know, 52 weeks times 59 years would put us up over 25,000, um, over uh, 2,500. Um, so this isn't a monthly. This, this is coming out more frequently, or it had been at least. Um, and one can't help but wonder if it weren't perhaps a trade uh, journal. In fact, instead of saying notice, it says avis, which is just notice for French. And then there is a five-line French, basically copyright infringement warning. Yeah. You know, watch out, folks. If you do this, you're, you know, all of the, the models who are pictured here um, are you know, under assignment and those who created the pictures have the copyrights. Uh, There's something going on here that really functions within the world of fashion and right from the very beginning, it's concerned with money, Mm -hmm. right? Because this is a financial issue, uh, I mean, concern. Um, And I would also point out that a bazaar is a marketplace, Mm -hmm. So there's an awful lot about getting and spending um, in this in the entire context here. Um, the Ode to Pegasus, I will just say for those who didn't read it, and I know you don't need a reminder, um, is a story about a boy who really wants to be able to come free from the earth. He wants more freedom than is possible. And somehow, magically, it seems as if uh, a winged horse on a weather vane that he can see from his uh, window at the top of a multi-story house um, becomes a a horse that he can ride on. Um, And he goes off into the air fantastically. Ultimately, when he grows up, he becomes an aviator, which in those days is considered a dangerous occupation, and a very accomplished aviator who writes what we think of is an ode to Pegasus. He scratches it into the wing of his aircraft on a transcontinental air race but in fact he crashes at the end or perhaps he doesn't crash perhaps he is transubstantiated into some kind of pegasus heaven and it's just his plane that crashes we don't know it's a matter of personal freedom Um, and he's held down by the mechanics of the modern world so when he finds a mechanical alternative to being earthbound there still is that inherent tension and and it kills him trying to be both of this world the animate and of the mechanical here we have a story that what holds us down isn't the nature of the world it's the nature of the money right it's got to do with whether or not you have the finances um and so this magazine is, I think, a surprisingly, you know, instead of saying, oh, it's it's a woman's magazine. It's just about something ephemeral like fashion. In fact, this is a woman's magazine, and it is a very much about what it means to be a woman. The opening, which is very powerful, mm-hmm. focuses on the mother of Paul. Uh, we later, late in the story, learn her name is Hester. Um, and it's mostly about how she looked to be a good mother 
to the world around her, to the people around her. Mm -hmm. But she knew in her heart that she was not a good mother. And what happens in the story, would you like a bit of a pricey now? Please. Well, what happens in the story is that Paul, who's the oldest of her three children, the next two are, are girls. Paul and the girls seem to hear that they are in a house that is always whispering, there must be more money. There's always a sense of a lack of money. We know that both Hester and the father come from families that had more money than they have now that they're together. And they, they barely work. Each one had a living, we're told. But together, the living was not enough to let Hester be in the world that she'd become accustomed to as a child. Um, and the reason is that she doesn't have luck. At least that's what she explains to Paul. And there's a lovely passage in which she says it's more important to be lucky than rich because if you're lucky, you will get riches. But if you're rich and not lucky, you can lose your money um, and then you you have none for ever after. Um, what transpires is that Hester's family clearly continues to have some money. Her, her brother, who's Paul's uncle Oscar, has no trouble. And in fact, gambles. Later in the story, we learn that it's a gambling family and it's cost them a lot. They have suffered from it, the mother says, but she doesn't want to talk about it to Paul. Paul is given gifts from his uncle that presumably his parents wouldn't have been able to afford, including one Christmas, a lovely rocking horse, which Paul does not name. And that fact is repeated in the story. Um, I have my own theory about the namelessness of that horse. And what we come to understand slowly, beautifully, the, the writing is excellent and the insight into yeah. character, I think, terrific. Good. Is that Paul rides the riding, the rocking horse, um, even when he's too old for such a toy to uh, interest him if he were ordinary. And when he's riding the rocking horse, he sometimes gets to know the name of a horse that will win at a, a horse race nearby. We even know that he hears this name before he knows that the names of the horses that are running, because the very first time this happens, he yells out Malabar. And nobody knows what it is, but. The gardener says, oh, that was, you know, the guy, the one who won at such and such a place. And or perhaps it was the uncle. I'm sorry, I forget. No, I think it was the gardener. And so we know that the names just come to him. He, Paul, starts secretly letting the, the gardener, Bassett, um, who is, in fact, Paul's hound, he does for him what he needs done. Um, place the bets and hold the money because Paul's too young to do it. Paul amasses an enormous amount of money. Uh, Bassett has a role as a, a dog's body as well to the uncle because it turns out that we are told he had been Oscar Cresswell's Batman. Mm-hmm. When Oscar Cresswell was in the war, this is 1926. Presumably, Oscar was a, a, an officer in World War One, and Bassett, 
who got wounded in the left foot, um, sort of like Oedipus or Achilles, I suppose, um, is given a job by Bassett, uh, excuse me, by Cresswell. He gets him assigned to uh, Hester's home. Uh, Bassett holds the money. Paul amasses an enormous amount. He secretly conveys it to his mother through his uncle when his uncle finds out what's going on. And the three of them, Bassett, the uncle, Oscar, and Paul, are in cahoots. Paul doesn't care about the money. Paul wants clearly the attention and love of a mother who could not fully love him because she was so consumed with a desire for money. Mm-hmm. And when he is now up to the point of going off to Eton, which is possible because he has made enough money as a gambler, but he's not gambling. He, he only really bets big when he is sure, when he knows, which happens from riding the rocking horse. So he must be 12 because you go to Eaton between 13 and 18. So he's a 12-year-old boy, and he rides that rocking horse so furiously that he falls into a nervous fever and is delirious. But he yells out the name of the last horse that he's sure of. And in fact, Bassett places the bet for him. His uncle places the bet for him. And uh, I'm sorry, Malabar was the last one. Mm-hmm. not the Daffodil first. was the first one. Thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. And it ends this Malabar, Malabar, did I say Malabar, mother? This is Paul speaking his, um, uh, in, in a frenzy, in a nervous frenzy. Did I say Malabar? Do you think I'm lucky, mother? That is, luck has been the mother's name all along for whether or not life would treat you well. It has nothing to do with your own merit. Right. It's amazing. Um, hence, a big part of your idea, I think, that this is a critique of the, this readership. Uh, who are too interested in fashion and not enough in producing clothing. Did I say Malabar? Do you think I'm lucky, mother? I knew Malabar, didn't I? Meaning he was sure of it. Over 80,000 pounds. I call that lucky, don't you, mother? Over 80,000 pounds. I knew, didn't I know? I knew Malabar came in all right. If I ride my horse till I'm sure, then I tell you, Bassett, you can go as high as you like. Did you go for all you were worth, Bassett? I went a thousand on it, Master Paul. I never told you, Mother, that I can ride my horse and get there. Then I'm absolutely sure. Oh, absolutely, Mother, did I ever tell you? I am lucky. No, you never did, said the mother. But the boy died in the night. And even as he lay dead, his mother heard her brother's voice saying to her, that is Uncle Oscar, My God, Hester. You're 80-odd thousand to the good and a poor devil of a son to the bad. But poor devil, poor devil, he's best gone out of a life where he rides his rocking horse to find a winner. And I think that ending is so rich Mm. in family structure, in what it means to be luck, to be lucky in what it means to ride a rocking horse. Um, in literary history, I can't help but remember Tristram Shandy reading the end of this. Um, this is, I find, just stunning. And one has to ask at the end, 
it began with a mother, but it ends with her brother addressing her. And what Lawrence does not give us is her reaction to the boy's death. No. Which is, yeah, that female readership, what is their reaction going to be? Exactly. So when you said early on in uh, our conversation here, Jesse, that um, this is a kind of fantasy that doesn't leave you knowing what um, you should think coming away. Uh, and And you said that that was the kind of fantasy you don't like as much as the other used Ode to Pegasus as the example. Um, I wonder if it's not the kind of fantasy so much as it is the fact that the fantasy, well, if it's the kind of fantasy, the point is that fantasy in Ode to Pegasus is used to give us a portrait that we come away with and we can sit back and contemplate whereas here the fantasy is used to ask us a question that is uncomfortable in that we don't want to have to answer it in the ways that seem morally required Mm. um in other words it's not just an ambiguous or ill-defined ending you know i i told those two different things it's the use of fantasy to make us confront something utterly ineffable and in the case of a lack of maternal love at least um, ultimately undesirable about our real world and if that desire is the desire for filthy lucre and there's a nice passage about that in the story mm-hmm. which perhaps you'll talk about um, by golly the 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 women who can afford to at least be aspirational about needing a weekly magazine of fashion, um, they need to think twice about the economic underpinnings of such a world. Yeah, so uh, I, I I really appreciate what you, you you summarized and analyzed there because I see all, I saw all of those things that, although I wouldn't have been able to put it together the way you did um, I, I keep thinking about how the mother and father are actually in exactly the same position right? They're, they're parallel in in their lives they're both unlucky we're told they're they they married for love we're told and then that that love went away um they have servants multiple servants there's a gardener there's a nurse um presumably the mother's got a a lady's maid um but the the important part to me of this story is the house is haunted it's haunted and we're even told it's haunted um, specifically that word, I believe, uh, because there's this voice behind, you know, the dining room shelf and you know, behind the teddy bears in the, in the nursery. And the voice is always whispering, we need more money. There was never enough money. There's not enough money. Well, to me, that's not something that a ghost would whisper. That's the parents, right? So I, I'm already in the wrong mode. But then I start thinking, why is it the mom's fault? <laughs> right? Why is it, at the end of the story, why is it the mom's fault? The, the dad's in exactly the same position. But it's, I guess it's because it's targeting the, the, the mother and the worries of a mother. But we're, we're told all sorts of things about her from a narrator's point of view, but we don't know who the narrator is. The narrator 
is all-knowing, but is very selective of what he or she chooses to tell us. And uh, I want to point out that it's it's they're they're supposed to be middle class, but they're not. They're very upper middle class or very lower upper class, right? And maybe the uncle is doing better because he doesn't have any kids or something. But uh, the the word here is, uh, or this this is the sentence that gets me. The mother had a small income and the father had a small income, but not nearly enough for the social position which they had to keep up. It says they had to keep it up, but why? For who? In fact, they're the richest people in the neighborhood. And the line continues, the father went into town to some office, doesn't matter where he went, right? But though he had good prospects, according to who? These prospects never materialized. According to who? There were, uh, there was always the grinding sense of the shortage of money. Again, according to who is there's this grinding sense? It's a free floating this anxiety, and I really appreciate that that that's the haunting of the story, right? This free floating anxiety that the kids understand, but most especially the son who somehow is taking over the role of the father, right? He's got to provide money for the mom who apparently needs to spend money on all sorts of things, including sending their kid to Eaton. Why is it so important to go to Eaton? It is so important to go to Eaton. There's all these unquestioned assumptions in the narration, which I think is the kind of the point Lawrence is going for. But <clears throat> if we go, just go back to that table of contents. And again, it's, uh, I, this is why I like to include table of contents in the, besides it having the copyright information and, you know, where the source is. It also tells you about what else is going on at that time. Uh, by the way, that Maria Morovsky story came out uh, in November 1926. This one is July 1926. It's entirely possible that she immediately read that story and said, oh my God, I'm going to tell my own version of this. Um, but it would be a very quick turnaround. So I don't know if, if, if it's just uh, free-floating anxiety of women's roles in uh, the 1920s or... What? But we've both got we've got um, parents and uh, a, a male son who needs to ride something, um, and dies in the riding. So there, there's some connection there, I think. But um, if you look at that table of contents, um, I'm just going to read down. It's it's kind of fun to look at. So we've got a cover with uh, some French uh, description and then a French artist, right? Then the elegant of summer, and elegant spelled with an E on the end, so it's very French. His, his last first night, a thrilling story of the stage. The tennis frocks of five women champions. <laughs> Just like the word frocks. Uh, why not brunettes? More chapters of Anita Lou's continuation of gentlemen prefer blondes. Problems of everyday life, an article on the human nature of the Countess of Oxford and Asquith. Oh yes, just like me, you and me, right? <laughs> and then uh, undelivered letters more letters from a spoiled American girl to her English husband <laughs> a complete summary of the new mode presented uh, by the Paris mid-season collection right? so halfway through the season whatever the season is it's a fashion season right? there's a new mid-season collection and then look at this one encourage the horse races an article about the French racing season what do rich people do with their money they waste it. That's what they do. They waste it on fashion. They waste it on horse racing, right? 
snapshots from the French races, uh, presumably photographs, the smart accessories of the moment in Paris. This is a magazine for the United States uh, with a very international uh, audience, or uh, internationalist audience in mind, right? We've got a, an English story set in England, and we've got all these French uh, things in Paris and, and uh, horse racing in France, and then we got the rocking horse winner. A gripping tale of a little English boy, I guess. And then, how to have the courage of your own complexion. An article concerning various beautifying theories. Luggage designed by Erte. That's the same uh, guy who did the cover of the magazine. Tampico, continuing the novel by etc. Harper's Bazaar Shopping Service. Again, something you don't have if you're a, a poor. And then... This is my favorite one. Astral Friend, the fascinating Tony Stark in A New Feat of Detecting by Arthur Summers Roche. Last Minute Sketches from Paris. That's your magazine. And then it tells you next month, Advanced Fur Fashions. This is a magazine for the ultra-rich. The people who are posing to be the ultra-rich. Who want to be the ultra-rich. Who are thinking... So I absolutely see this as a critique of the audience... And that's why the husband isn't sort of very important to... It's, it's the uncle telling the, his sister, the mother of uh, his nephew, your boy is dead. He doesn't blame her exactly, but that's the implication. I, I think you're right. I think, and this is part of what I meant when I said it was a women's magazine. It is, I think, more aspirational than it is... Um, a practical guide because um, the really rich people who can afford to uh, pop over to France for their racing season, they probably don't bother reading these magazines at all. Magazines are middle-class productions and the, the really wealthy don't expect, don't even consider being guided by the opinions of the middle class. They set the trends and they'll be guided by their couturier, their couturiers who will tell them, well, this is what we're putting on. They'll go see the fashion shows. They're at the fashion shows. They're at exactly. those horse races. Exactly. So this is really it's, it's the, the same way as nowadays the modal reader of Seventeen magazine in the United States is 12. Right. It's, it's someone who would like to look at the life of a 17. 17. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's what's going on here. But. I give credit to the editor. Um, the Rocking Horse winner is, in fact, a, a critique of just this, of letting money, and not just the money, but how the money lets you appear to be to other people. Mm -hmm. um, a critique of that as opposed to something real, like real love and real maternal love. And this mother, you've got to give the narrator of the Rocking Horse winner credit, this mother knows there's something wrong in her heart. Mm. She feels that it's stony. Um, I would say that when you say they waste their money, I'll remind you of Thorsten Veblen's concept of conspicuous consumption. The rich uh, in these fashion ideas, you know, the, the different furs and the different cuts and so on, they're not wasting their money. If you get seen at Ascot, ah. you didn't happen to win on the horse race. The point is you were at Ascot mm. and you were seen. Wearing so, your Ascot. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So the money matters 
but it doesn't matter for the real things. So when when Paul says at the end, am I lucky, mother? Is this better than being rich? Am I lucky? Mm. You know, he's asking, was I able to be what you wanted in your life that neither you nor nor father could supply? Why is it that it's about the mother? Because it's 1926. And the father isn't expected to do a whole lot of parenting, although he is expected to set the tone of the household if he has enough money to be able to say this will be this and this will be that. But he doesn't. He doesn't have enough money. But one thing we do know about him is that he tries. Right? He keeps going to his office. And when we're told that he none of these prospects ever work out, I have a feeling for somebody who is willing to live on his income, that is, inheritance, uh, rents, um, prospects means, could I hit it big enough that I would never have to worry about going to the office again? Right. In the same way, when the mother finally decides to do something, it turns out she actually has a talent for drawing, for drawing pictures of women in dresses. Mm. Perfect for this magazine. She finds that she's got a talent for it, and the friend of hers who lets her into the gig makes 10 times what she does. The woman makes thousands. The mother makes only hundreds. And so the mother is, again, perpetually dissatisfied. She's not dissatisfied because she can't have a roof over her head and food on her table. She's dissatisfied because she can't live as luxuriously as she lived as a child. And here it's worth pointing out, I think, that D.H. Lawrence was truly working class. I mean, he grew up in coal mining territory and would have become a coal miner, not a coal mine owner. He would have become a coal miner if his verbal skill had not given him an alternative. The people he grew up among were the people who were even below Bassett on the uh, economic scale. I don't mean to say that he's trying to get at them illegitimately out of some kind of animus, but I think he knows darn well what it means to have enough money or to want a whole lot more money. And although Bassett is making out like a bandit, there is no criticism of Bassett. He's a true and loyal servant to uh, both Uncle Oscar during the war and to Paul now during this world of racing. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, there's more criticism, I think, of Oscar. At one point when they're driving, Oscar uh, says, to hell with Bassett, right? And yep. and this and the boy keeps coming up with this phrase again and again, honor bright, honor bright, right? It's sort of his response, his echo of the. If you look around, right, filthy lucre, that's what the Oscar is brought to the table as a phrase. I assume that um, there's never enough money is the mom's, right? Yeah, and the father doesn't seem to have his own. Uh, his own catchphrase, but honor bright. Um, it's it's like I think that Bassett's is the most uh, moral. The son is the most misguided. The uncle is on the borderline between being a jerk and just being you know a regular uncle, and the mom is to blame for everything, and 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 not in a way that I feel is justified, except that. The way the narrator tells it, right? Right. It's ca- It's why is there never enough money? 
it didn't seem like she's throwing all the money away, although she's not good at finding any ways to make money at first. Um, it's because they have to live this conspicuous lifestyle. This one where we cannot lower our standards. And he says to his uncle at one point, Paul says, uh, there's always writs. Right? There's all these writs. So they're getting sued, basically, over bills. Yep. And who's spending that money? It's not the servants. It's not... It, it's it's probably in fashion. <laughs> it's yeah. my guess, right? It is. And that may be why the mother doesn't make as much money as a fashion artist, because it may not be so much a friend as, you know, the, the store that employs the friend wanting not to lose a prime customer. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in the story. Not discussion. There are a lot of glancing references in the story to a world in which the supernatural does exist. Uh, it's not just that the rocking horse lets Paul know. There are references to God throughout. The, the notion honor bright sounds an awful lot like uh, something that has to do with uh, swearing, mm. but swearing, right, but swearing an oath in light, not darkness. Mm-hmm. But at the end, that phrase, poor devil, Mm. is repeated as Oscar tries to make clear to his sister what happened to her son. But her son is not a devil. Her son is just a man. But unlike Jesus, he is not a man who was born to a woman who knew how to fully love him. Mm. It's not a coincidence, I think, that after he falls off the horse, it's three days until he dies. Mm. I would also point out that in Tristram Shandy, which is an enormously famous 18th century novel, um, we get the word hobby, meaning something we do just for fun, from um, hobby horse, mm-hmm. as it's descri- discussed in um, in Tristram Shandy. And we're told that there is an uncle who rides a hobby horse. Um but he doesn't really ride the hobby horse. It is his hobby horse to do this, that, and the other. What he does is make um, little figures, tin soldiers and such, and big elaborate sets that show famous battles. So the uncle in Tristram Shandy has a hobby horse. That is to say, it's as if he rode a hobby horse. And that's where we get the word hobby. That uncle's hobby was hearkening back to the war and famous wars that he had no part in. Here we have what is, in fact, known as a hobby horse, but also known as a rocking horse. Mm -hmm. And I think the connection with Tristram Shandy is a valid one, uh, because, as I say, it was well known. The crucial thing about hobbies is that you are supposed to outgrow them. Mm -hmm. That's why the uncle in Tristram Shandy is a figure of fun. Paul is about to go to Eton. Paul is about to hit 13. Paul is about to become pubic. Paul is about to become, in some sense, a man. But because he has never been properly loved by his mother and wants so desperately to make her happy, he will not give up his hobby. And that sticks him in childhood. He cannot grow just as Jesus remains forever as a man always 33. He's never going to get older as a man. Um, We don't think that Paul, who, by the way, is the chief apologist 
for Jesus, right? St. Paul. We don't think that Paul, this Paul, is on his way to heaven. Uh, we think that he has used up his luck because it's been poured down the bottomless well of a luckless mother. Hmm. Luckless because of her own having been captured by a society that values conspicuous consumption. This is a lot for a fantasy story. Mm-hmm. Um, but not having the money at hand to buy a new chronometer to put a Rolex on my wrist, um, I will have to say that I am dissatisfied. I feel unlucky, except to notice that by my old watch, there's still always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. Thank you.